This episode of New Politics was recorded on the 9th of April, 2021, and recorded on the land of the Wangal people. Welcome to the New Politics Podcast. In this episode, the botched vaccination program causing all sorts of problems for the federal government. The feminisation of the Liberal Party. Is it really happening or is it just another charade? And the sedate national conference is a sign that Labor still believes there will be a federal election this year. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, Peter Dutton's defamation lawyer. Now, a few people have been asking us about the book that we mentioned a few months ago, and we've almost completed it. It's called Politics, Protest, Pandemic, The Year That Changed Australia, and it's coming up soon. And we'll let you know all about it on our website at newpolitics.com. So it has taken a little bit of time. It's over 400 pages, so it's actually a bit of a time, but so much happened in the 2020 year of politics. So it's taken a little bit of time, but yeah, we'll be coming out pretty soon. Early Christmas present for everyone in April. I'm really excited about it, actually. It looks good, and I think we can both say we're both very happy with it. And also a few people have asked us, well, we like what you're doing on your website and also through your podcast, but how can we support what you do? And well, there's a number of different ways that you can do that. You can buy a T-shirt or a book, or you can just make a donation at our website, which again is newpolitics.com.au. And I'm a little bit sad to say that most of our sales have actually been coming from T-shirts rather than book sales, but that's okay. That's how it works. Well, you can wear a T-shirt, but you can't wear a book. So maybe we'll have to work out a way of combining the two. Uh, if everyone buys 400 t-shirts, we could put a page on each t-shirt and then over the year, a bit over a year, you can wear each one a day and, and read the book that way. That might work. Australia's vaccination program is continuing to have many problems. The number of vaccine doses administered is just under 900,000 and it's ranked number 53 in the world for the amount of doses. And the number of full vaccinations is so low that it's not even registering in the world charts. This is the number one issue for the federal government this year, but they've really mismanaged this project and mismanaged public expectations about when the vaccinations will become available to them. And this is now starting to cause political problems for Scott Morrison. This is what happens when governments overpromise and underdeliver and manage issues politically rather than practically. Morrison's reactions to the current problems with vaccinations is to blame everyone else, claim that they misheard what he said, or deny that he made the promise in the first place. Now, this is becoming like a broken record, but how many times can Scott Morrison get away with this strategy? Seemingly many. The interesting thing is, is that most elections around the world, and this includes Australia, the incumbent government has been returned, provided they've handled the pandemic well or have been seen to have handled the pandemic well. Uh, Western Australia very famously nearly completely wiped out the Liberal Party. Tasmania will be interesting because I think the government down there handled the pandemic actually pretty well. So it wouldn't surprise me to see Peter Goodwine returned. Having said that, it's a uh, Hair Clark system, so anything can and does happen in the Hair Clark system. Donald Trump lost the American election because he handled the pandemic badly. Boris Johnson, if an election was to be held tomorrow, 
would likely scrape back in because he's been seen to have handled the pandemic well in, in at least some parts of the country. I think the federal government in Australia would find it very difficult to argue that they've handled it well. 53rd in the world in terms of getting the vaccine to us probably is not so bad. There are countries who needed it much more than us. But in terms of the number and getting it out, it's pretty appalling. We have a modern integrated health system in each state and we do vaccines here regularly, kids' vaccines and adult vaccines like the flu vaccine. That's the problem. They, they just haven't been able to manage it. I think it was the shovel or was it the Batuta advocate who proudly announced Australia meets its target of 4 million provided you rounded up 3,900,000. And that's the problem. They didn't look at what was practical. They most likely botched the deal to get vaccines here by not getting enough out. And then it seems, this may be a state issue, but I think the federal government will get blamed for it, that the vaccine is being targeted in wealthier seats rather than poorer seats. There was a letter in the Sydney Morning Herald from a GP in Redfern who said that he only got 40 doses, whereas GPs in more affluent and medical centres in more affluent seats were getting two and 300. Eventually, as Abraham Lincoln said, and this probably should go on to Scott Morrison's gravestone when he eventually succumbs to the inevitable, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all of the people all of the time. And I think that's the type of thing that Scott Morrison has never fully understood. This has been a pattern of behaviour throughout his whole career, apparently. Well, the vaccination program, it just seems to be so poorly managed that it's almost by design. And for me, it seems like it's a, it's a process of setting it up to fail so that the federal government can then go and blame the states. And David Littleproud, he told the states to pull their finger out, but it's the federal government that's actually responsible for these delays. Scott Morrison did say that he's not going to play politics on this, but his ministers obviously didn't get the message. You know, of course, we've mentioned this in previous podcasts that Australia has managed the coronavirus pandemic very, very well, and maybe there isn't such a need to have the vaccines rolled out as urgently as it's happening in Europe or in America, but it gets back to what has the government promised, and they've promised that there'll be a full vaccine available by February. That that actually didn't happen. That's started. They did say that there would be 4 million vaccinations completed by the end of March. That's already passed and they've only vaccinated something like 900,000 by the end of that time. And they also made a promise that there were going to be full vaccinations, that the entire population was going to be vaccinated by October the 31st. Now that's definitely not going to happen. And today there was an announcement that the government had secured 20 million Pfizer vaccines. And that's in the context of what's been happening with the issues with AstraZeneca vaccines. Now we don't actually know what secured means when the government says that they've secured 20 million Pfizer vaccines. We don't know when they'll arrive. Morrison has said that it will actually arrive in quarter four of this year. So I guess that means any time after September the 30th. But Morrison is just so unbelievable on this that we'll have to wait until it actually happens to start accepting that it's actually happening. Again and again, the federal government since 2013 has consistently botched large rollouts. The census, we have an inv a statistically invalid census. The NBN rollout, you know, done at the direction of a monopoly owner of media here, who now seeing the backlash is claiming that it was not his idea, but it was very well documented at the time that it was. The 
vaccination, even border control. This government doesn't know how to do large rollouts. We've been holding a census here since 1904. It's a big job, but it's well documented how to do it. And if you follow the steps, you should be able to do it with a well-funded and well-trained public service. The NBN rollout. We got the inferior fibre to the node, not fibre to the house, which will cost over the years. Renewable energy. It's fairly obvious why they don't want renewable energy coming in because they're very reliant on coal and gas and the extractive industries. So maybe we can put that one to the side. But when it comes to large-scale logistical rollouts, something that the federal government should do pretty well They're just not capable of doing it, it seems. And I think it's because they don't understand the role of government. They don't understand the role of politics. They're not interested in hard work, even when it leads to substantial achievement. They want to, as the Americans say, own the left, whatever that means. They want to win the debate and they want to look good. Unfortunately, after a time, looking good actually requires you to buckle down and do some work. And it's also a question of how far can this mismanagement continue for? And the spin and the media management and the lies, they're just becoming more and more brazen. So recently, the Labor Party did introduce another electric car policy, which we'll talk a little bit about later on. Back in 2019, I can distinctly remember in the lead up to the 2019 election, Morrison went so hard against Bill Shorten's electric car policy. He said, well, that's going to be the end of the weekend. Electric cars can't tow a boat. You can't go camping with an electric car. And of course you can. Like there's evidence out there that suggests you can do all of those things if you wanted to. So that was 2019. 2021, just last week, Scott Morrison now claims that he's never been against that technology. He's always been supportive of it, even though... The evidence is there that he's never suggested that. On the vaccines, it's always the same sort of situation where he claims that he never attacked the European Union over the delays in the delivery of the vaccinations. That's what he did a couple of months ago. He attacked the European Union incessantly just a couple of months ago. Now he's saying that that never happened. On Christine Holgate, the previous CEO of Australia Post, 2020, six, seven months ago, he said, well, she must go. I've asked her to step aside. 2021, just last week, he says that he rejects that, rejects that assertion. It was a decision by Australia Post. She resigned herself. I never said anything like that. I never suggested that she should resign. So again and again, we just keep getting these endless, well, it's like a repeat cycle. As I said before, it's like a broken record and the tune being played is not very interesting and it's not very good. You just have to expect that the public is just going to get sick and tired of this at some point. The polls have shown a relatively popular Prime Minister, but anecdotally, it find, it's very hard to find people who are enthusiastic about him. I've said this before. I did know people who were very enthusiastic about John Howard. Tony Abbott has his small but diehard group of fans who will not hear a word against him. We might find that odd from you know a leftist perspective, but they were there. And for us to deny that undermines the history and, and undermines the appeal of Tony Abbott in terms of how did he get there. Malcolm Turnbull is very popular amongst certain segments of the community. Not the press, but nonetheless. He's not a popular figure. He's not a populist figure either. He tries to be a populist figure. I think he's, his models are probably closer to someone like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil and Donald Trump in the United States and Boris Johnson in Britain. Men who seemed more successful, and even they have their supporters 
in a way that Scott Morrison doesn't seem to have. And if you're listening and you think, well, I, you know, I think Scott Morrison's wonderful and best thing, please let us know. We won't ridicule, we won't disagree with you, but I haven't found anyone. Well, as we know, there's no such thing as the perfect government. And according to Morrison, this is the most perfect government there's ever been in Australian history. It's the most brilliant government ever. Everyone else is, is at fault. And as I mentioned before, it is starting to wear a bit thin. But we can see that there's a tsunami of problems that are coming up for this government. And most of these are self-inflicted as well. There's the ongoing problems with the vaccination program that we've already discussed. They've also got serious political problems with women issues and that's something that we'll talk a little bit about later on. JobKeeper has ended and that's going to cause a lot of political pain. It's also going to create a lot of problems in the economy as well. There's the ongoing issues about corruption that keep coming up. The government can keep spinning, backtracking and keep pushing out their narratives but eventually it's just not going to matter what they say. The electorate just isn't going to believe them anymore. When the public stops listening to you, and I think Paul Keating said something along these lines. When the public stops listening to you, you're finished. I have a slight suspicion that the government is really a dead man walking or a dead person walking because more of the population has stopped listening than is still listening. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the Liberal Party is trying to feminise itself, but is it for real or is it just a bit of window dressing? The federal government has responded to the claims that it's an anti-women boys club that condones sexual assaults and harassment by its own ministers by agreeing to hold a national women's safety summit and it's decided that it's so urgent that it's going to wait another four months before the summit is held. It's also shuffled around the ministerial deck chairs so that the women they already have in cabinet are a little bit more prominent and they've also inserted the word women into a few ministerial titles. They've also decided to change the Sex Discrimination Act to include politicians and judges. But most of this just seems to be window dressing and responding to events politically rather than doing anything substantial about these issues. Will these changes be enough or do they need to make wholesale reforms? Uh, Just a very quick point on the Sex Discrimination Act. The reason that judges in Parliament weren't included is because they were considered to be held to a much higher standard and that they wouldn't go down under the law, they would just go down under uh, shame and embarrassment. Qualities that seem to be missing from certain parts of the judiciary and certain parts of Parliament in the last decade or so. It's almost as if he said, you know, ladies, don't worry, the men are here and we've fixed it for you. We understand what you are going through and don't be sexist, guys, that type of thing. And it's empty and it's hollow and no one believes it. And the sad thing is, is that without overpraising the Liberal Party too much, it was actually fairly good to women, particularly contextually. Robert Menzies revered the women of the Liberal Party. 
when he went to a branch meeting, as he often did as prime minister, he didn't waste his time talking to the men who wanted to tell him all about how to solve the problems in Malaya. He went to the women who he knew had promoted it, had made sure everyone had turned up. He knew exactly, and of course Menzies brings the first female junior minister into cabinet, which was uh, Damien Ed Lyons. Now there's a whole history behind that. Some of our listeners who are maybe more historically informed will know that Damien had blamed Menzies, at least in part, for the early death of her husband, Prime Minister Joe Lyons. But he still brought her into cabinet. And uh, you had women like Margaret Guilfoyle, And I think Margaret Guilfoyle was the first female member of cabinet uh, in Australia, or at least at a federal level. Now, to be fair to the Labor Party, they spent a lot of time out of office and so couldn't get a lot of these firsts in just because they didn't have the opportunity. To be fair to the Liberal Party, they did bring these firsts in. And they may have been too little. But compared to today, we seem to have gone backwards. If we look at the Labor Party, which I think has 49% of its members are women, which is close to the representation of women in the country, which is 51%. It's highly likely that the next leader of the Labor Party, whenever that may be, may be a woman. Of course, the way that Julia Gillard was treated is possibly giving some women some pause. But things have changed since then too. So the National Women's Safety Summit, so that is due to be held at the end of July. That's four months away. So I guess they have to organise accommodation and flights and, and that sort of sort of thing. They need to get the posters ready and the announcements and the media marketing all, all ready for that. So, you know, I, I guess it's better late than, than never, but to wait four months is a little bit of an insult. And it's primarily being focused upon women's safety. Now, it's been narrowed down to domestic violence against women and children. And again, that's a very, very important issue. But there's just so many other areas that are being excluded. Gender gap issues, there's discrimination, equal pay, superannuation. All of these issues have been left out. Anne Rustin, she's the Minister for Social Security. She said that the summit has just got the single goal so that they can concentrate on, on women's safety. As I said, that's fantastic. But Governments should be able to do more than one thing at a time. And generally, the idea of a summit is a good thing. So Kevin Rudd had the 2020 summit in 2008, and that gave rise to a lot of policy initiatives. There were a whole lot of experts that were invited along to come along to the 2020 conference. These events can be great for policy development, policy initiatives, but it's all about, it's not just about having a talk fest. It's about actually implementing things and, and doing things as well. So... For example, the Sexual Harassment National Inquiry report, that was a report produced by Kate Jenkins. That was actually released in March 2020. And 13 months later, the government decides to accept all 55 recommendations, or at least that's what they're saying. It's just an announcement. There's no suggestions about when these recommendations will come in or any legislative support. So that's a long time to wait for a Sexual Harassment National Inquiry report. Why has it taken so long? It's, yes, Minister... You don't commission reports that you don't know the outcome to before they've been done. And if you come out with a different outcome, you put it away till people either forget or till you can massage it in such a way that it looks like that that's was what you wanted all the time. I think they're feeling the pressure. I note the bits of the mainstream media I've read have, have said there's a change in the air, that Australia is having its hashtag Me Too movement a little bit later. Me Too movement happened at the time uh, here, but I think the, the deeper ramifications are actually starting to come through now. I, th- I think there's at some level an acknowledgement that things have changed. 
whether the government can catch the zeitgeist quickly enough. And this goes back to what we were saying before, you know, how popular is Scott Morrison? He's never been a highly supported prime minister, but there's a lot of women who are now very angry with him, it seems. If you lose women's votes, you've lost. I'm also wondering, well, how many other reports have been uh, not released or withheld for a long, long time? So there was also a report in 2015, the Room for Movement, Women and Leadership in the Liberal Party. Almost six years ago, it was never publicly released. And it looked at all of these issues within the Liberal Party, the, the boys club culture, harassment, sexual harassment, intimidation. That was that was buried. And it was, I, I guess you've got to give credit that it has been released. It's out there now. But what else is out there that they've refused to release? And there's a lot of other factors that are going on within the... Well, it's not just the Liberal Party, but it's also the National Party. There's a by-election. It's only a state by-election in New South Wales in the Upper Hunter region. And that was called after the Nationals MP, Michael Johnson. He was forced to resign over rape allegations. And there was a front-runner that the National Party had. It's Sue Moore. She's the mayor in the local area. She was the front-runner. It was widely expected that... She she was going to be pre-selected for the Upper Hunter by-election, but they opted to pre-select a bloke. And you think that even for appearances, now they are expected to lose that by-election, but you just think even for the appearances about what's going on at the moment, they'd select a woman to run in that seat, but they didn't. Yeah, running a conservative woman, rural woman, I would have thought, particularly after the Barnaby Joyce claims that they're moving past this, but apparently not. Nationals, of course, aren't known for their progressive views and don't want to be known for their progressive views, and that's fine. But there are some things that go beyond pure politics and even pure ideology. And yet, not selecting a woman for that seat, even as a symbolic Pyrrhic victory, I think says volumes and will not go unnoticed. Mm -hmm. There was also another big announcement last week, which largely went unnoticed in the media, I noticed, but Australia now has two prime ministers at the, at the same time. So obviously there's Scott Morrison. He was voted in at the 2019 election, but he made a decree last week that Maurice Payne, she's also the prime minister. She's the prime minister for women. So I'm not sure if she gets her plaque put up at Parliament House or the official portrait is painted up and hung up or whatever the case might be, but... Australia now has got two prime ministers. So that's a good thing to hear. But, you know, of course, this is all window dressing. It's all just announcement after announcement. It's not an official position or anything like that. And and just when you think, too, that the silliest decision they made was making Tony Abbott minister for women, they're able to undermine the stupidity of that selection by something more. It's quite incredible. Well, I guess what the government is banking on at the moment is that there's absolutely no doubt that, that all of these issues over the past three months, there's currently white-hot rage against the Liberal National Party related to sexual assaults and harassments, and they're probably expecting that this is going to drop off over the next couple of months, and that's probably going to be the case politically, unless there's more allegations that come out about Christian Porter. But... The other factor is that Christian Porter is still in cabinet and there has been a little bit of a reshuffle, but it's the same amount of women as they had before. Makes it look like Scott Morrison is doing things without actually doing very much. Andrew Lamming, he's the member for Bowman in Queensland for the Liberal National Party. And he had a few issues a few months ago where he was stalking women in his own electorate and he's taking photographs of them. He has announced that he's leaving politics, but he's still in parliament. And that's primarily because Morrison needs his number on the floor of the parliament. 
He's been a serial pest with all of these issues over the past few years. It's not a new incident that he was up against. So it's not up to us to tell politicians how to behave. But you would think that you wouldn't need to go to empathy training to know that maybe taking a photograph of a woman's underwear while she's bending over might not be the best thing for a politician to actually do. It goes down to privilege, really, doesn't it? That he's obviously gotten away with this for years. You don't at the age of 40 think, oh, this will be funny. You know, and Scott Morrison smirking when the question comes up, suppressing a giggle. You know, that, that's 16-year-old behaviour that you wouldn't tolerate from a 16-year-old, by the way. Any 16-year-old who did that in a school would be instantly disciplined, possibly suspended. But it's the notion of privilege, having behaved in such a way for so long and gotten away with it, not understanding that you can't get away with it anymore. The other thing, too, is that the honourable thing to do would have been for Laming to have stepped down immediately and they held the by-election because from an optics point of view, to use the jargon, it's better to be seen to do the right thing and lose with nobility than to grubbily hold on to the seat to keep your numbers. Well, that would be the honourable thing to do, but it's, it's never going to happen. <laughs> That's just the way that politics operates. But the other factor that I've noticed is that, and I guess it's the, it's the case in most elections, there's always narrow pathways for either side of politics towards winning an election. And it seems to me that based on Morrison's behaviour over the past three months, that the Liberal Party has determined that it's a... It's a narrow group of men that will decide the next election for them. And, and that's the subset of swinging male voters who are anti-women. They've got traditional perspectives about gender politics. And that includes, you know, I'm not trying to say that it's a particular class of male voters, but that includes blue collar and white collar workers. It's across all age demographics as well. They don't really care too much about politics, but they do vote. And they'll be persuaded by a prime minister who is supportive of their views. And, and we can also see that Morrison is trying to have it both ways. He's paying lip service to women by adding women into the name of a ministry. He's being surrounded by women in photo opportunities. But he's not offending the sensibilities of those male voters that he wants to keep on side. And it's, it's a fine balancing act, but I'm not sure if it's achievable. It's a diminishing group of men too. Again, I think he's missing the zeitgeist. I'm not saying that those men don't exist. We have Mark Latham in the New South Wales Upper House, for example. But it's a diminishing group of men, and I don't know that it's where I would be looking for my primary votes. And a more subtle prime minister wouldn't be so blatant about it. A much more effective politician, say like John Howard, would not say any of their rhetoric, but there'd be a sort of wink to that section, you know, don't worry, guys, we know you're there. Only we can do it without really saying it, but knowing that that message is getting through. And that's known as the dog whistle, whereas Scott Morrison prefers to play the megaphone. Yeah, or the foghorn, yeah. If the tide has changed, and I suppose there can be doubt whether it has or not, but by the looks of things it has... This way be dragons, and uh, as in it's highly dangerous with very little chance of recovery. So he gets his 3% of traditional male vote and loses 97% of new male thinking, or you know, it won't be those types of numbers, but the, the viewers will tolerate my hyperbole. I've told myself a million times not to exaggerate. He's running a very high risk, low return game here, which prime ministers shouldn't do. 
You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud, Spotify and Amazon Audible, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the end of another national conference as the Labor Party prepares itself for an election year. Federal Labor Party has just completed its national conference and the first time ever it was a virtual event. And that means that we didn't get the backroom deals happening or ideological arguments on the floor of the conference, so it ended up being quite a mild-mannered event this year. It seems that despite all the problems the government has been having for the first three months of this year, there's an expectation within the Labor ranks that there will be a federal election this year, and that's probably a reason for why the conference was a relatively sedate affair. For some time in the media, there was talk about who will Scott Morrison be up against at the next federal election. And given all of his woes, he seems like he's actually fighting against himself. But we might have to turn that question around and ask, who will Anthony Albanese be up against at the next election? Political parties aren't known generally for their bravery. When Labor was going through its dark time with Rudd Gillard Rudd, John Howard said some of the numbers that they were getting in terms of popularity, he would have loved because they were good numbers. Howard was always a less uh, popular prime minister, though that core of true believers, for want of a better term, did love him deeply. And uh, you've got to remember that about the Howard years, that, yeah, not everybody loved him by no means, but those that there was a coterie of those that did who deeply loved him. The current federal cabinet are frightened, and they have reason to be frightened. There are water scandals, there are sex scandals, there are financial scandals. You know, we know of ministers who have insider traded. We know of ministers who have formed companies in the Cayman Islands to to trade dodgy water. We know of very close and inappropriate professional relationships between ministers and minors' families for example, or members and minors' families. So there's a lot of fear. The whole edifice could come tumbling down. With a retirement in the right part of federal police or in the ombudsman's office and a new broom, anything could happen, let alone an election. This, to me, suggests that we may have an attempt to depose Scott Morrison. Now, against that, Scott Morrison set the rules to make it very hard to depose him after he used the old rules very much to his advantage to depose Malcolm Turnbull. You need a two-thirds majority of the elected members. And two-thirds is a very big ask. It is a big ask, but I noticed that Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, he just recently changed the, the law in Russia so that he can remain president up until 2036. So maybe that's something that Scott Morrison could be looking at as well. I have no doubt that he's looking at delaying the election somehow. The latest it can be is May 2022. That that's still, while Morrison remains in power, that's still, I don't think he'll go early because that takes courage and nous and strategy and something happening to his advantage, none of which he's actually very good at. I, I suspect there's a lot of looking at the Constitution, looking at how soft the courts are, 
and we may disagree with the justices of the High Court, but they are all very much tied to the law and will not make political decisions without a very firm legal basis. Now, we started off this section by talking about the Labor conference, but here we are talking about the poor performance of Scott Morrison, and that's no real surprise to many of the people that listen to our podcast. We've been a consistent critic of Scott Morrison ever since he became the Prime Minister in August 2018, but he has been consistently poor, so that's why we spend so much time on him. He he has been protected somewhat by the COVID-19 outbreak, but if you look at all of the damage that he's done. He's damaged Australia's trade relationship with China. There's all the spin in media management, poor management of the vaccination rollout again. He takes responsibility for nothing. He always goes missing. But we'll end on Scott Morrison for the time being and get back to the Labor conference. It was an unusual one this year because the the conference was held virtually for the first time and that sort of takes the fun out of it a little bit. So conferences usually do all of their work and that's across the board. It doesn't matter which political party is having the conference. They usually do all of their work behind the scenes in incidental meetings you run into someone that you know that's a bit of a power broker you make some sort of arrangement with them there's backroom deals but with no backrooms or incidental meetings occurring everything was resolved before the conference started so it was actually a pretty straightforward affair there were issues about free trade gas development and several foreign affairs issues and they were actually quite esoteric that relate to the Labor Party platform but that was all pretty much resolved and updated in the Labor Party platform. There have been a few initiatives as we mentioned before about electric cars as well and that's the first time that the Labor Party has looked at electric cars or initiating some sort of policy on electric cars since they were accused of waging a war on weekends at the last election. I remember... Was it the 84 Labor conference where John Brown and Bob Hawke came up with a 110% tax cut for sport, for big sporting events? And Keating basically told them, there's no way you're getting 110%. I'm sticking to you two like shit on a blanket during this conference to make sure that it doesn't go through. And that type of drama at the Labor conference was always great fun if you weren't at the receiving end of it. I imagine Telstra shares will go up as a direct result of the backroom deals being made on the phone the week before uh, from you know the, the deals going through. A sedate Labor conference is it's sort of sad, really. When there's a bit of fire and a bit of conflict, they're much better to watch, particularly from the outside. Well, I guess the public never actually sees those backroom deals taking place, but through a virtual conference, I guess you'd have chat room deals going on. So there's probably still mm. a lot of activity that was going on behind the scenes, whether it was virtual or face-to-face or whatever. We'll just never know what the outcome of that of those actually were. But it seems like the, the big theme that was coming out of the Labor Party conference, and it seems like it's going to be an election slogan for for this year or whenever the election is held, whether it's this year or 2022. But the slogan is on your side and asking the the electorate which side are they on. And here's a small snippet. Long time ago, I did pick a side. I chose to side with those who believed every Australian should have access to health and education and affordable housing. I chose to side with working people who wanted a fair day's work for a fair day's pay. I chose to side with those who know that action on climate change is urgent and economically smart. 
I chose a side that believes everyone should have the same opportunities, regardless of their postcode. And I've spent my life fighting hard on the side of those Australians. As the member for Grainler, and as Deputy Prime Minister, and now as leader of the great Australian Labor Party. I did pick a side. Yours. Contrary to what happened at the 2019 federal election, I'd say that there's probably going to be very few policies, if any, announced in the lead up to the next election. But it's going to be more about putting out labour values and feelings like on health, education, fair work. And they'll obviously keep saying on your side. And that issue, the lack of policies or very few policies, now that's probably going to disappoint many Labor supporters, but that could end up being a winning formula for the Labor Party. Say nothing, present yourself as a credible alternative and let the government fall apart by itself, which it seems to be doing a very good job of it at the moment. Kim Beasley was rightly decried for trying a small target strategy in '98. And particularly in retrospect, that was right. But I think Kim's problem was he couldn't articulate, for a very articulate man too, he couldn't articulate even a semblance of vision. Now, the last three governments have got in on terrible, terrible electoral campaigns. That's objectively terrible. We remember things like Tony Abbott nearly punching the Channel 7 reporter, Malcolm Turnbull having a temper tantrum, Scott Morrison's last electoral campaign I thought was hugely disastrous, but they got in, meaning that Labor always, and I've said this before, Labor always has an uphill battle. They need inspiring message. They need inspiring leadership. I don't think they need policy. Now, Bob Hawke and Paul Keating were able to present as credible policy people, but also with the sense of, don't worry, we know what we're doing. You just go back to work and let us do the hard stuff, which is, of course, a traditional liberal liberal thing, or with the establishment, we've run this place for 200 years, we know what we're doing. Please go back to work, pay your taxes and let us sort it out, and you will see the prosperity come through. I don't know that Anthony will be able to do this, but I think starting with a general message like on your side, quite similar to Kevin 07, but without the cult of personality that that required. Bill Shorten, I thought, ran a very good campaign. It didn't work in the end. There's a sense, I think we were berated by someone by saying that we'd forgotten that Labor had ignored its base. That's quite possible. It may have been a little bit too focused towards what the inner city wanted to hear rather than rural and semi-rural areas wanted to hear. But something like On Your Side has that open-ended positive feel of its time, potentially. So it just might work. Well, also, having policies is a, is a good idea, but generally the electorate isn't interested in those policies. So I guess the rationale would be, well, why release all these policies if they're just going to be attacked? And I guess the other, the other issue that does tend to be forgotten, like, sure, Kim Beasley had a small target policy in 1998, not just in 1998, but also 2001 as well, mm. and he didn't win the election. But it's also forgotten that Kevin Rudd pretty much had a small target Mm. approach in 2007 and he was the instigator of the original me too movement because he was accused Mm. of me tooism at that time that he was just pretty much replicating whatever the coalition had on offer during the 2007 
election. He virtually released no policy at all during that time, but it didn't seem to matter because it was the government that was falling apart at that time. Howard had been in for 11 years. It was the end of his time and Kevin Rudd provided a fresh face. So the small target or the huge release of policies possibly doesn't really matter. It all gets down to who is the instigator of the messaging that happens during the election campaign and whether the government is on the nose or not. Exactly. Tony Abbott, of course, did the Me Too thing to perfection, really, when he said no cuts to the ABC or SBS, no cuts to education, basically saying what these guys have done, we will keep, which was Malcolm Fraser's. You know, Malcolm Fraser kept nearly everything the Whitlam government bought in, uh, except for Medibank, uh, multiculturalism, uh, free education, expanded health, but not through Medibank infrastructure. They kept the rest of it, much to the disappointment of many liberal voters who thought that they, that it was those issues that were the problem. It might be, and again, I've retired from calling elections, but it might be that this is the strategy that works. Particularly, one of the things that Bill Shorten did very well was he always presented himself with Penny Wong and Tanya Plibersheh and the other women candidates. He may have been a bit early in that. I wonder if that will be much more successful this time with a new uh, vibe in the air. Well, we'll just have to see which side everyone decides they're going to be on. So there's still a long way to go before any election is is held, at least August this year. There was a great deal of discussion in the media that it's going to be an early or earlier election. But based on what's been happening in the first three months of this year, that seems like it's going to be pushed back a little bit. But as we keep saying, we just have to keep watching this space. I, I don't think he has the courage. That's it for this new politics podcast. Thanks for listening in. If you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very, very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It helps keep our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.